Thanks, hey everybody. They tell me we're recording, so I should watch my language. So I will. Uh, I'll be careful what we say. Really glad to uh, get to spend some time with you. We've got uh, about forty-five or fifty minutes to break through your barrier. All right. So like we got to like jump into it and move fast through it. Can I just kind of get a feel of who's here? How many of you are planters, planning to plant? You haven't launched yet. You're in those early stages. Okay. How many of you have? Launched in the last five years. You're a planter in the last five years. How many of you are five years or older? I don't know if you can still call yourself a planter or not. If you're after, I don't know. At some point, we lose that distinction. I don't know when that is, but uh, okay. And how many of you didn't fit in any of those categories? Great. Okay. All right. So I don't know what your deal is, but we'll figure it out along the way. Want to just maybe just tell you a little bit about myself, and uh, and then we'll we'll jump uh, we'll we'll jump right in. Uh, like Chad said, about nine and a half years ago, I started. Um, Water's Edge. I was a, a a planter, not a pirate. So I was I was sent um, through a Southern Baptist church and uh, sent with about fifty people, uh, which I think is 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 the way to go. If you're going to go, that's the way that's the way to go. We had a core team of about fifty when we counted um, all the uh, all the families and kids, and uh, my, my wife was pregnant, so we counted that child as well. And it was it was great. And so we we uh, we went with about fifty and got started. Uh, that was nine and a half years ago. Now nine and a half years later, um, we're, we have two campuses: one in Yorktown, one in Hampton. We're about to open our third in Newport News, Virginia. We live on this little strip of land called the Peninsula, and so it's kind of interesting. With these three campuses, there are about a half a million people who will now be within uh, within five to ten miles of every of, of one of our campuses, and so um, it, it's it's pretty amazing the potential that we have. Um, just right there in Hampton Roads, I've got I've got contact information here if you guys if you guys want it um, in case in case you want to follow along or follow up. I listed Katie is my assistant, and in just a few moments I'm going to show you um, a document that we use that might be of help to you. So if you want it, uh, Katie's the contact information there at the bottom, and you just email her, and she'll uh, she'll connect you with it. Katie at Waters Edge Church. Um, dot net. Now, uh, let, let me just make sure we're all together on this because um, because a growth barrier is just just so we're all on the same page is an obstacle that kind of stands in the way between your church and the, and the next level of where you want it to go. Primarily, we're talking about numerically. Obviously, there can be some leadership growth and and some different aspects of growth that aren't necessarily numerical growth, but in this session, in this context, we're primarily talking about a barrier that stands between where, where you are currently and where you want to end up in terms of, of, of growth barriers. And, and they invited me to do this session because um, not, just, not just like Chad said, we've, we've broken some of those barriers, but we've hit those barriers. And I think that's the, I think that's the key. We've, we've hit some barriers along the way. We've hit them uh, probably at a lot of the expected parts uh, and, and moments in terms of church growth. If you've ever studied growth barriers, you know that um, there are there are some numerical markers that just cause you to kind of stall out if you don't make some changes. There there are some of those markers along the way, um, and, and you can study those on your own a, a little bit. Uh, if you just Google it, you'll find lots of people have done great research and, and, and written great concepts about it. Well, you know, at two fifty. For example, when we hit 250, we stalled out, and we had to make some strategic structure changes at 250 to move to move beyond that. Thankfully, we did. At 500, we we stalled out again. I remember about an eight month time span 
where we talked about what's it going to take to get over the 500 mark? What's it going to take to get over the 500 mark? And we had all kinds of crazy ideas. Like um, somebody on our, t- our team said, well, it's going to take adding a second video screen. Because at the time, we only had one video screen. And they were like, if you add a second video screen, it'll take you over 500. And um, it didn't. So just in case anybody's thinking about making that investment, it didn't. There was a strategic move that we made. I'm going to explain it to you in just a moment. But it's what took us over 500. And so we've hit those barriers along the way. Our most recent was at 3,000. We, we hit... We hit um, 31, 32, 3,300, and then, and, and then we started backing back off of that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what those barriers um, were that caused us to, to do that. And so I, I guess I, I just want you to know that I'm coming at this from an angle of uh, barriers happen. They're, they happen in, in every church, in every context, for every leader. They happen, um, and you've got to be aware of them. You've got, you've got to be aware of them if you're going to ever break through them. We all know churches that are the same size today as they were last year, as they were two years ago. Um, church that, um, you know, I, I grew up in is the same size today as it was when I was a middle schooler in that church. And it's primarily because of growth barriers. And so you have to know how to identify those and, um, and look through. I want to kind of start with an assumption um, as we kind of get into this conversation. I guess I want to start with an assumption before the assumption, based on last night's session, can I just start with the assumption of Jesus, all right, can I just like toss that out based on what Louis said last night, the, uh, the original assumption here has to be Jesus, and, and I want to just say that so that we're all on the same page, uh, most of what I'm going to share uh, about breaking through these growth barriers doesn't sound very spiritual on the, on the surface, um, and, and I, I want you just to know that, that starting off, Jesus is the assumption that it's all about him, it's all about his name, obviously he's the one that grows the church, and, and we just play a part in that, I guess the second assumption is this, and I think this is probably safe to assume for all of us, but growth is a goal. Can I just make sure we're all on the same page there? In the world of church planting, that isn't always the case, and I understand that. Um, you know, maybe maybe for you the goal is authentic community, or maybe for you the goal is you know serving a city or caring for the underprivileged, and and, and those are all great lofty goals, but. But in, especially in the context of, of this conversation, growth has to be the goal. We want God's kingdom to advance. We want our churches to grow. We want people to be transitioned from darkness into light, from death to, to being alive. We want that for, for people. So growth is, growth is a goal. It's not the only goal. It's not the only measure of success. If growth is your only measure of success, you will have some very depressing Sunday afternoons, right? I mean, if you've been there, I've been there. Very, very depressing Sunday afternoons if growth is the only measure of success. But it is a goal, and for the purpose of our conversation today, we're going to talk about how to, how to take it to another level in terms of growth. I guess the, the other thing I want to maybe start out with here um, is probably an obvious for most of us in the room, but nine and a half years ago, nobody told me this, that numbers count, so you must count numbers. Nobody told me that nine and a half years ago. Uh, we're far more sophisticated in the world of church planning today than we were nine and a half years ago when I planted. But nobody told me you should count who's there on a Sunday. Nobody told me that. In fact, the first time it ever dawned on me that we should be counting was at the end of our first month. Our church planning strategist sent me a uh, church planning report from the state convention. Anybody gotten those? They're fun. And, um, and at the bottom, at the, at the end of the report, there was this little table, and it asked me to fill in certain numbers about how many first-time guests and how many people were in our small groups and how many people we had volunteering and how, how many people had attended on average for that month and how many of those were children and, and how many cars were in the parking lot. It's asking me all these questions to which I knew none of the answers, so I, I did what most of you do, and that's I made educated guesses and 
guess high, you know, so um, I wanted it to be a good first month. But then we, we really, really started, um, we started counting because, uh, well, because numbers count, so you, you've got to count numbers. And I, and I would just say to you that the starting point for breaking through a growth barrier is, um, is being uh, real about your numbers. Um, and that's hard for some of us to do. Uh, but you have to be honest about your numbers. You have to be honest with yourself and with your team and with the strategist who's helping you, with your sponsor church. You've got to be honest enough to know um, where you're at so that you can know when you hit one of those growth barriers. We developed a little tool, and it, it doesn't show up well on, on the screen, but I'll just show you the first, first little bit of it, and then, and then maybe we'll just zoom in a bit. This is, this is a report card, and this is the tool I was referencing. If you want to email Katie, she can send it to you. Um, this is a report card that's about six pages long that we developed that helps us track our numbers. And it, 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 what it does for us is it compares month over month, and it, we, we blanked it out um, here, but you'll see, and we'll just do a zoom in for us, some of the numbers that we, that we track. And this is just from the front page uh, of, of the document. We track the number of people who are active in Fellowship One. F1 is our, is our da- database. We use Fellowship One. And so we track the number of people who are active there. We track the number of households. We track the number of people who are over 11 in, that, in, the, in our Fellowship One because over 11 is, for us, a key number because that's how many people are eligible to really get connected at Water's Edge through a small group or through volunteering. We track the average number of people per household, the number of those who are members. Uh, we track the percentage. We track, and, and it, this goes on and on and on. And we do this not just for our database, but then we do it for Sunday attendance. We do it for uh, the number of, uh, of baptisms. We do it for our community groups. We do it for volunteerism. And we track every single number because those numbers really matter. And if you're not tracking numbers, then you're not going to know if you're hitting a, uh, a growth barrier. And I, I'll tell you, um, sometimes the illusion of a full room or the illusion of an empty room, or the illusion of, oh my gosh, you know, somebody left a, a small group, and so all of our small groups must be, you know, just blowing up in front of our very face. Those illusions aren't truth uh, until you start tracking those numbers. And when you really start looking at hard, fast numbers, um, you'll start to discover if you've hit a growth barrier or not. And, and until you're tracking numbers, you really don't know whether you've hit a growth barrier or whether you haven't. So you've got to count, you've got to count numbers. I want to just do this um, with the time we've got. I want to just want to be real practical and um, tell you, uh, for us, the four greatest barriers that we've hit for growth. And, and I'm just going to walk through these. Um, they're, they're probably ones that you've heard before, but I hope I can maybe give a little practical twist to them, and then we'll have some time at the end for Q&A. But these are the four that we've run up against the most over the last nine and a half years. And I'm going to address these in more of a general a practitional kind of, kind of way. I'm not, I'm not going to um, address them from a numerical number kind of way. So it's not going to be at 250, you got to do this, or at, at 450, you got to do that, because we're all at different places numerically in here. And I think these are leadership concepts that all of us deal with as growth barriers. And the first one is, is probably one you're familiar with. It's, it's facility. Um, I'll tell you that for us, over the nine and a half years that we've been going, number one growth barrier has been facility. This is the one we've run up against time and time 
and time again. And if you're not careful, it'll become your number one growth barrier, especially as a church planter. Here's what happened nine and a half years ago when I planted. Um, we did a demographic study. You guys done demographic studies if you're looking to plant or if you just plant. We did a demographic study. We found an area that we felt like, man, this fits us. We fit them and, and, and they need a church. And so that's where we decided to plant. We never once in our determination of where to plant considered facility. Never once. Never once. And, and now when church planners talk to me about, hey, how do I decide what city to go to where? You've got to do more than a demographic study. You've got to do a facility study because facilities are really hard to come by. I told you we're about to open up our third campus. And we just came out of, um, of, of a very recent facility search for this third campus. After a three-month exhaustive Search in the city we wanted to, to start this campus in Newport News. Um, guess uh, guess how many how many viable portable options we came up with for for church facility <laughs> zero. After, hey, and we're nine and a half years old with a proven track record and money in the bank. Don't be a hater, but we got money in the bank. All right, so that's like, and we found no viable facilities for a portable venue. Uh, you got to start with with facility, and obviously. When you're thinking about facility, you're, you're, you're thinking about things like accessibility, and you're thinking about cleanliness, and you're thinking about functionality, and you're thinking about parking, and those are all things that, um, that you, you probably already know and you're already thinking about. I, I want to maybe just give a little twist to this facility conversation that maybe you, maybe you haven't thought about um, that I think can really be a growth barrier for you given the facility you find yourself in. And, and the, I, I, the, the, first, the first part of it is that there are times... When a facility is too big and it becomes a growth barrier. Now, most of us think of the opposite. We, we just think of, gosh, the facility is too small. We've outgrown it. But actually, a facility that's too big can be a real growth barrier. You've got to have a facility that you can make feel smaller. Um, I was out a couple months ago uh, visiting a few of the Life Church campuses. And you're familiar probably with Craig Rochelle and Life Church. And... Um, and they've got, you know, this model of multi-site that we're trying to, trying to learn from. And so we were visiting some of the campuses that, that, that they've built. And in every single one of their campuses now, they're installing this, um, this track in the ceiling in their auditorium with a, with a curtain on a runner like what, you know, you see when you go to the doctor's office. And they're, they're installing it because what they've discovered is that you've got to be able to make a facility uh, feel smaller. When we started nine and a half years ago, there, there were 50 of us, and we were meeting in a YMCA double gymnasium, all right? So humongous room. There were 50 of us in this humongous room. We had to, we had to learn how to make that facility feel smaller because when a facility is too large, it's a growth barrier. You walk in, and there's a sea of empty seats. Maybe, maybe there's 150 people there, all right? Maybe you've got 150 people coming to your church, but you're meeting in a high school auditorium, which is awesome, but you're meeting there with 800 seats. Well, you walk in, and you feel like you're in a sea of seats, and there's no excitement, there's no buzz, there's no energy, there's, there's no enthusiasm. And that kind of a facility can end up being a real growth barrier because it's too big. So um, we learned to invest in very inexpensive pipe and drape, if you haven't. Uh, found that the, the value of pipe and drape as a church planter. Um, some church planter ought to start a pipe and drape business, all right, because it is, it, that's, that's where the money is. But it's inexpensive. You can buy it, and you can very quickly, very easily make a room feel smaller, and you can make that room feel larger um, just by moving the pipe and drape 
out. Uh, we have um, uh, at, on our, one of our campuses multiple services on a Sunday. And so not all of those services are at optimum times. We have a 6 p.m. Um, Sunday evening service. And in our world, that's not incredibly optimal. Maybe it is in your world, but in ours, it's not. And so um, the room is, is generally about uh, 50% full uh, in that service. And so what we started doing is putting up pipe, pipe and drape and making the room feel smaller. And it just creates this illusion that the room is smaller. This was so funny. This just happened two weeks ago. I, after one of our services at 6 p.m. in the room, technically the, the room seats about 500 people and there were about 250 people in the room. But because of pipe and drape, the room felt full. And so I had this usher come up to me after the service. And he was just, I mean, he was just busting at the seams, excited. Stu, can you believe how many people were here tonight? Can you believe how full it was? We had only one more row of seats. That's it. And I, I wanted to say, no, if we'd have just moved the pipe and drape, we'd have had like 20 rows of seats. But I didn't, I didn't want to burst his bubble. And here's a, here is a, a, a guy who seats people in an auditorium, walks people past the pipe of drape, sometimes even helps to set it up and tear it down. But even for him, there was an illusion of it's full. It's full. Now, full can be exciting. Full can create momentum. Full can uh, generate a buzz. If you've got a big facility, you need to make it smaller. Now, before you just take that and run with it, let me tell you the flip side of that, is that is that a full facility can be a growth barrier, and you've got to know when and where that is. And so, yeah, sometimes you've got to make your facility feel smaller, but sometimes you've got to make your facility bigger because a full facility can be a growth barrier. Um, I, I've, I've had to repeat this to myself many, many Sundays, and it stinks to have to say this. And maybe, maybe this would be a quotable uh, thing for you. As well, but I've, I've had uh, this has just had to enter into my repertoire of things that I say to me, um, and it's this: I am not Stephen Furtick. Okay, I've had to say that. If you don't know who Stephen Furtick is, you can find out about him. He's at Elevation Church and a great pastor. I've had to say to myself repeatedly: I am not Stephen Furtick. Because here's what Stephen Furtick does. Okay, Stephen Furtick builds uh, auditoriums at, at, at Elevation, and we've we've been privileged enough to see this firsthand. And um, he builds them in such a way that uh, they know they're going to fill them up. And then they also build overflow spaces that they know they're going to fill up. And they also create this buzz and momentum. They bring out chairs and sit them in the aisles and people sitting in the lobby. And this happens Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Stephen Furtick can sell out an auditorium. Stu Hodges cannot, okay? And I don't know how great of a communicator you are or how dynamic you are on stage, but likely you're not Stephen Furtick either and that old 75, 80% rule that you heard, you know, in seminary perhaps, that when a room is 80% full, it's full, that's true. Uh, it's true. And we've tried to push that limit repeatedly, and we can push it for about three weeks, for about four weeks. We can put chairs in the aisle for about three weeks or about four weeks, and guaranteed every single time the attendance starts to drop after three or four weeks with chairs in the aisle or when the parking lot gets full because at 75 or 80%, your facility is full and a full facility equals growth barrier every single time. It equals a growth barrier. And so I would really encourage you to think about how can I make my facility larger? You say, well, I don't have money to do that or I don't have the, the space to do that. Okay, how about, an, how about adding an additional service? Have you thought about that? I would, I would say to you that one of the greatest ways to overcome a growth barrier is to add 
additional services. At our Yorktown campus, we have five Sunday services, five services. I preach them all live. You can give me a standing ovation later. Five times on Sunday, 8, 29, 45, 11, 10, 4, 30, and 6. Now, out of those five, only two of them are optimal times, 9, 45, and 11, 10. You kind of picture that and figure it out. Only two of those are optimal times, which means that only two of those are 80% full or greater. But, but we had to start all those other ones because we were at full capacity, 80% or greater, at 9.45 and 11.10. So adding services, what does that do for you? Well, it, it increases, increases the number of volunteers you need. So when you get somebody volunteering, what happens? They get a little more bought in, which means they attend more consistently, which means they help you push that growth barrier and get over a number, which means then they're, they're a little more bought in, so they're inviting people, which means they're pushing that growth barrier, which means then you're opening up seats and people are looking around and saying, oh, we've got some room to invite some people to join us. And so that growth barrier is getting pushed. Now, likely when you start a service, you've got to make your room smaller, right? You've got you to get back and so you can... Again, make it bigger. But facility for a lot of us can be a really big barrier that you have to learn how to, to, how to push through. Um, let's, go to, let's go to number two, structure. Structure is a growth barrier. I'm really talking primarily about leadership structure. And maybe, maybe you'll disagree with me here. And, 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 and that's fair. That's fair because I know there's a lot of different models and a lot of different mindsets and a lot of different philosophies and a lot of different theologies about leadership as it relates to the structure in the church. I I just want to tell you, just plain and simple though, that you need a structure that facilitates growth. And, um, And if you're at a beautiful place of starting from scratch where you're not having to come in to a structure that's already existing, I would say start with that structure, which means you need a leadership structure that allows you and a small team of decision makers to make the decisions necessary to facilitate growth quickly. Because when you're dealing with uh, uh, explosive, exponential growth in a short period of time, you've got to be able to come around those decisions and make them very, very quickly. I think a lot of us have um, seen churches whose primary primary growth barrier is their leadership their leadership structure. Now we'll talk just briefly uh, about numbers here because I think it I think it does matter. Around 200 uh, I think this is pretty commonly uh, agreed upon around 200 you probably need to start thinking if you haven't already and about the uh, leadership structure of staffing. If you haven't thought about that around 200 that's usually the mark where as a as a, a single staff person as a as the pastor with no other no other support staff or help on staff you, you're going to probably get overrun pretty quickly and not be able to grow beyond that 200 mark. So around 200, if you haven't already, you need to be thinking about um, you need to be thinking about adding staff. Now, I will say to you that um, that that traditional model of one staff member you've heard this one to every 100 attendees. If you heard that one, um, that doesn't hold true for church planters. Okay, you can kiss that pipe dream goodbye. All right, because you can't afford that ratio as a church planter. But around 200 is when you need to add your first, your first staff member. Um, around 500, you need to start delineating your staff structure. You need to start thinking about who's doing what and who's responsible for what and who's in this meeting and not in that meeting and who's, who's overseeing this but not overseeing that. Up to about 500, um, you probably are functioning with a team of everybody doing a little bit of everything. And around 500, you need to get a little more specialized. Um, and and this, this probably means that uh, you're pushing... 
you're pushing that staff member, you added it 200 to grow a whole lot, and you're stretching them, and you're going through some growing pains, and that's a very normal, normal process, but you've got to be willing to have those hard conversations and push your staff. And then, you know, around, around 500 is, is also when you've got to start having leaders um, become leaders of leaders, especially as you push that 750 mark. Your, your staff leaders have to be able to lead leaders and not just do. And if they're just doers, then they're very expensive commodities to have on your team. You need people who can lead leaders. That's a really, really big deal after, after 500. And I always say to you this, um, because some of you are struggling with this right now, um, after 500, pushing toward that 750, you may need to make some staffing changes, and that's a hard thing to swallow, and that's a difficult thing to even think about. But as you push toward a, a growth barrier of about 750, maybe that staff member you brought on at 200 was great for 200 but not great at 750. And there may have to be some staff changes that you have to make in, in your structure. Let, let me just um, break down this for just a moment and talk about it um, a little bit more because there's something you should understand. Growth happens seasonally. I, I, I guess everybody kind of gets that. It, there are these little pockets of growth that happen um, seasonally, and, and it's, it's, it, it, it's just a little bit of a, a, a jolt sometimes, a little bit of a burst of, of, of seasonal growth that you have to be able to capitalize in the moment. And this is why structure is so important, because if you don't have the structure to come around that, that season of growth in that moment, you'll miss it, and it'll delay your growth. It'll stunt your growth. This is what happened to us um, in, in the most recent growth barrier that we hit. We, we hit uh, 32, 3,300 in January and February, and we were not expecting it. It was not at all what we were projecting, and, and, and we, we project our growth. So we kind of have an idea of where we're going so we can make decisions about that. But we pretty much skipped uh, 2,900 and 3,000, and I think we hit 3,101 Sunday, but we just kind of blew past that. And we were up to 3,200 3, real quick. And before we could really wrap our minds around it in this little season of growth that we had experienced, um, we were dropping back off, which is what a growth barrier does. It allows you to hit a number or maybe even go above a particular number. But if you don't make the necessary changes to overcome that barrier, you'll drop back down below that number. And so that's exactly what happened to us. And so we, 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 were, we were realizing that we had a facility barrier at 3,200. At 3,200, um, our facility was maxed out. Um, one of our facilities was maxed out, and we needed to add a service. But we, we weren't prepared enough from a leadership structure to turn that opening of a new service around Quick enough. We also realized that we had a systems problem, and I'm going to talk about systems next. So I'm kind of giving you the the, the cue here. But but with systems, we didn't have systems that could support 3,200, um, particularly with our assimilation systems. And so before we could even get our leadership team to come around and rethink it, we had missed our season of growth. And that's why structure is so incredibly important because there are these little pockets of time seasonally that you're going to have in your church. And if you miss them, um, it'll, it'll be a whole other season before you can, you can capture them. Let's, let's go to number three, which is systems. Uh, by this, I mean lack of systems, by the way. I should maybe say that because you need systems. And I could really talk about this one all day long because this is, in my opinion, um, probably what most churches struggle with the most when it comes to growth barriers is systems. And I'll tell you why we struggle with it. Um, we think about systems like a Christian. 
here's, here's another quotable moment for you. If you want to bust through the barrier of systems, you've got to stop thinking like a Christian, all right? You've got to think like a consumer. That's that, to be a really good systems person, you have to think like a consumer. I'll give you an example. Um, Groupon. Everybody's familiar with Groupon? Every single day, if you're a Groupon subscriber, every single day, you get an a email in your inbox waiting for you, telling you the deals of the day, right, for Groupon. And suddenly what happens is you get exposed to products and services that you didn't even know you need. Like some of them you didn't even know existed. Some of them you didn't even know you wanted. But now you see it's on sale and it's half price or 68% off and there's only limited quantity. And now as a consumer, you're like, sign me up, right? How many of you have bought a Groupon in the last three months that you still have yet to use? Perfect example. You got suckered by Groupon, right? Right? You bought into it, and 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 now you didn't. You didn't need it. Obviously, you didn't need it. You haven't used it in three months. You didn't need it, but you 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 have it. And I think that's key for consumers. Disney does this beautifully, beautifully. Uh, it's been a couple years since I took my kids to Disney, but um, after you ride the best, greatest rides at Disney, and you get off the ride, what do you walk through? The gift shop. Two people have been to Disney. The gift shop. That's what you walk through. And suddenly you see trashy merchandise that you had no idea you wanted, right? But now you want it. And you see that little kaleidoscope keychain that they put your picture in, you know, and you can look at it. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I, I didn't even know I needed that for my key ring, but now I want it because why? they've thought like a consumer. They've dumped you into a gift shop to see merchandise that you didn't know you needed or wanted, but you now want it. And that's the beauty of, of systems. They have systems in place that get you. And I don't mean this in a negative, um, kind of narcissistic kind of way, but, but you need to think about systems that capture people, that get, that get people um, your first-time guest systems, what do they look like? Is there one? You know, what, what, is a, what is a first-time guest experience when they walk through the front doors of your church? You know, I told you I've had to say I'm not Stephen Ferdinand. I've also had to say I'm not Andy Stanley. <laughs> because when I visited nine and a half years ago, North Point, before starting our church, one of the things that stood out to me that was so foreign to me um, was that there was no little book at the end of the row that you pass down and everybody signs in. You guys grew up in churches like that, you know. There was no, like, visitor information card. There was no, who's a guest, stand up, and we'll put a little pin on you. There was none of that. It was all, as a guest, I was very anonymous, and they never asked me for my information. And so when I started Waters Edge Church, I thought, that's what we're going to do. We're going to be just let everybody be very anonymous. We're never going to ask them for their information. And then nobody ever gave us their information. And I'm like, well... That's weird, you know, because North Point's obviously connecting people, but we're not. Well, I'm not Andy Stanley. So i got to have some systems that connect people. I've got to think about how to connect people from a first time to a volunteer, to, um, to, to a community group. i gotta, I got to connect people through systems. And one, one of the exercises I would recommend that you do is, is that you, you flowchart out your systems. So somebody pulls into your parking lot. What happens next? They're greeted by a set of greeters. What happens next? They're taken to a first-time guest area where they register and get a gift. Or you know, what happens 
next? Well, then they get a letter uh, that next week or an email that afternoon asking for a survey or they get a phone call from a staff member or from a volunteer or they, you know, they get something else. And then, well, what happens next? If we haven't heard from them in X number of weeks, we follow up again. So you just follow the system. What's the system for a first time? What's the system for somebody to connect to a small group for you. If it's just, hey, if you want to join a small group, go to our website and, you know, you can join one. I can tell you that your attendance in small groups is going to not be great. It's not going to be great. You've got to be more aggressive because you've got to think like a consumer. So what are your, what are your systems? We um, identified a, a system failure just in, in, the last, in the last six or seven weeks as we were working through this growth barrier uh, that we had hit. Um, we started examining systems because that's what I would recommend you do. If you're up against a growth barrier, you take these four things I'm teaching you today and you walk through every single one of them and ask questions about them. So we, we hit a, a growth barrier and we started walking through, was it a facility? Well, yeah, we should have started another service. Okay, we figured that out. And was it a structure? Well, you know, it was a little bit of a structure because we couldn't turn this around quick enough. Well, was it a, was it a system? Well, let's talk about our systems. We started flow charting out our systems and um, we discovered I, disco- I discovered that, and I didn't know this was happening, but we were having volunteers who were um, taking leaves of absence is what they would tell. We, wanna, we just need some time off is what they would tell their team leaders or their staff members. We just need, we need, we want to take the summer off or, you know, my kids in select soccer, so we're going to take the next three months off. Or we would have people who um, would, you know, drop out of a, a small group. We call them our community groups and they would drop out and they, what they would say to their group leader is, you know, we just are going to take, you know, a couple, a couple of months off because things are really busy, and then we'll join right back in. And here was our response. Okay, that was all we would do. That, that is a humongous, for us, systems failure. We didn't send them a note to say, hey, you've done a great job volunteering. Enjoy your break. I can't wait to see you in three months. We didn't, we didn't send them an email saying, hey, I'm sorry to hear you left your small group, but please make sure you join another one real soon. We didn't do any of that. And, and then we didn't do anything three months later. When they told us they wanted to come back, we didn't have it logged. We didn't have it marked. We didn't have any triggers to say, hey, you should go and invite them back onto your team or you should go and invite them back into a small group. We didn't have any. That was a huge systems failure. And it was just one tweak that, that we made to now go after people as a consumer, who have said they're taking some time off, and the result of that has been tremendous. Suddenly people are like, oh, yeah, I'll come back. I just wanted some time off. But what we were finding is that people who had taken time off, who we had invited back, never came back and got connected. So systems can be a real, real um, growth barrier. I'm going to give you the last one. You're not going to like it, though. It's you. (laughs) Sorry. I know. This one's the worst. It's, it's like the worst. And I, I should have maybe put it first, and then we could have all felt better and blamed it on the facility when we left, right? But the reality is that um, more often than not, you, you as the leader um, are, are the growth barrier. And I, and I would put this one last, if, if you can. Like, if you've hit a growth barrier, and you're sitting around with your team, and you're like, okay, we're stuck at 200, and we don't know what to do about it. How do we get a, I mean, I would start with facility. I'd point them and blame the facility all day long if you can. All right, you know? And then, and then man, I would restructure the mess out of that church. And just be, and I would create a whole bunch of new systems. When it comes down to the end of the day, though, if none of those things have worked, you better look in the mirror, because it's, pro- it's probably 
is probably you. I've, I've been our growth barrier on more occasions than I would want to admit. And I just made, I just made a few lists here of, of times that, um, that I've, I've been the barrier. Maybe you can relate to a few of these. When there's been a leadership decision that's, um, that's hard to make, that sometimes revol- involves a confrontational conversation, um, I've, I've been the barrier. Like, I, I've, I've, when I've refused to have that conversation or make that decision or lead toward that change, it's all come back to me as, as the barrier. I was, I was thinking about a, a time um, just, just the other day where I'd kind of let vision um, get cold. Uh, Andy Stanley says that vision leaks, and I think he means that more in terms of, hey, it leaks from the people in the pew. You've got to keep preaching it. But if you're not careful, your vision will leak from you too. It'll get zapped out of you. It'll get, it'll get pulled out of you. And, and when I look back, I, I did before this preparing for the session, I did, I did a little study of, of the last nine and a half years, and we pulled all the numbers and just laid them out, and I started looking at trends of when we've hit barriers. And, and some of those I could blame on facilities, and some of those I could blame on structures and systems, but, but some of those were times where, for me, vision had gotten a little cold, where I had... I had stopped saying it, spraying it, wheeling it, dealing it, and I had just kind of just let it be what it was, thinking everybody got it and thinking I got it and we can just keep moving. But vision's got to stay red hot with you. And so you might be the barrier if vision has, has gone cold. Um, if I've ever, when I've allowed my preaching to lose its edge and my sermons lack their creativity or lack freshness or insight, I am I'm the barrier. That's just the way it plays out. When I'm not modeling the way through the way I live my life, when I'm not inviting people personally, when, I, when I'm not pouring into my community group, um, I, I, when I'm not fired up about what's happening next Sunday, then, uh, then I am the barrier. If I don't believe next Sunday is going to be the best Sunday ever, I don't even know what I'm preaching next Sunday, but I believe it's going to be the best Sunday ever. I'm going to preach my best sermon next Sunday, I guarantee you. And if I don't believe that, I'm probably going to be. I'm probably going to be the barrier when my relationship with Jesus and my time with Him is consistent only of sermon preparation. I'm the barrier. I'm. I am. I'm the growth. I'm the growth barrier. And then this last one's hard for me to say because this is true. Been true multiple times. But when I am controlling and feel like I have to have my hand in every little thing and on every little person, I become the barrier. I'm going to just share with you a quick confession, and this will be a little embarrassing for me and. Um, but up until about six months ago, I arrived, um, on our campus at the same time, all of our production teams and all of our other staff arrived and I sat in the worship center while everything was turned on and I was there to troubleshoot if a light wasn't working and I was there for the run through of the entire service giving critique all along the way. I, I, and I was a huge, a huge barrier to the process. And finally, our worship guy, who's been with me for the nine and a half years, pulled me aside and said, it might be time for you not to come so early on Sundays. Think about, and this is how he said, think about how much better you would feel if you could just come in and preach on Sundays. And I got it. I was like, I'm the barrier, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah you are. And I'm like, okay, well, I can, I'll, I'll do better. And so I, that was up until six months ago. I like, because I was so, so freaking controlling. And if you are driven like me, and there's a particular way you like to see things done, and it's got to be done that way, listen, the best thing you could do 
is, is hand off leadership and back off and stop being so controlling because you are, you are the growth barrier. Now, you know, nine and a half years later, I'm starting, I'm starting to learn that a little bit. Let me just leave you with this, and, and we'll take a few minutes for, for Q&A as we wrap up. I, I'm going to give you the solution to you for a minute because I think this is critical for all of us. Um, the way that you um, can overcome the growth barrier of you and I think the way that you keep the growth barriers of system structure and facility in perspective is just simply this. You need a story. And if there's anything I could end with today to kind of make numbers all come to make sense to us, it would be um, you need a story, a personal story, like a story that you can tell, a story that you're living, a story that you rerun in your mind. Because here's what happens when you start counting numbers. Numbers become important. But every number is a story, right? Every number is a person. Every person has a story. You gotta, you gotta know, you gotta know a story. You gotta know a story because when numbers are really good, things seem out of control. You need a, you need to put a face with a number. And when numbers seem really bad and things seem like they're falling apart, you need one story that you can go back to. And when your vision draws cold, you need a story. And when you're working through a system and you're like, does this thing really matter? You need a story. When you're wondering about facility, you need a story. I just think every one of us need a story, a story that's our own, a story of somebody whose life is being changed because of what God's doing in and through our church. And if it hadn't been for stories, stories of like my next door neighbors, Brian and Rhonda Baxley, who... Um, we got to lead to Jesus after starting the church and who had never had never gone to church regularly. And when they had, it had been Catholic and they dropped their kids off and sat in the parking lot and read the paper until they were done. That was the extent of their church background. And then they, they came to Water's Edge and became Christ followers and their kids were, became, became Christ followers. I got to baptize them all. And now we play that, that, that game um, that some of you play with a, with a Hollywood character, but we play it with the Baxleys. Like everybody is somehow connected back to the Baxleys. Like everybody in our church somehow got invited by somebody who got invited to church by the Baxleys. And it just works... That way you need a story like that. You need a story like the lady I met Sunday night after our service who came at me. She said, you know that person you were talking about who needs Jesus? I said, yeah. She said, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm one month clean of, of being an addict. I've been away from my kids now for six months, and I'm trying to get my life back so I can get back with my kids. That's the story you need. You need one of those stories that you're playing a part in, and it keeps everything else in perspective. That's why growth barriers matter. Because without breaking the growth barrier, you'll never get to another story. Let's take a few minutes for Q&A and, um, and then Chad will wrap us up. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, the question's about hiring and have we had any tools or any uh, measuring uh, capabilities, uh, and i tell you what, hiring's hard, and there's no, easy, there's no easy way to do it. I'll tell you, I think the best way to hire is from within. For a church plant, I think that's the best way to hire is from within. You raise up leaders that you love. We're about to, we, we've just put in place a campus pastor. He's a guy who's, who sold real estate, who helped us start the church nine and a half years ago, and I just started pouring into him, pouring into him, pouring into him, mentoring him, and now he's going to be one of our campus pastors, and it's from within. I think that's the best, the best way. We have, a, we have a questionnaire that we send out, and if you send, ask Katie for it, I'm sure we'll be happy to send it to you. It's just a list of questions of things that matter to us. Um, we uh, question hard about our core values and about our 
culture, what we call our cultural imperatives. These are things that matter most to us at Water's Edge, and we make sure you line up with those before you ever come. Those are spelled out, and we ask a ton of questions about those. Um, we do a, a, a personality test and use that as well, but I'll tell you, I think the best way to hire is from within. You know what you're getting. They know what they're getting, and, um, and, and it seems to work best that way. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, it does. I think your worship guy is, is in most contexts, the number one higher. And that may be different for the way you're doing church. But in most models, for most contexts, I think worship is, is number one. Um, you know, probably followed. And he needs to be a dual purpose. If, if you've got a guy who can only sing on Sunday, he, shouldn't be, he probably shouldn't be your first hire. You know, he needs to be a dual purpose. He needs to be able to carry some of the pastoral load, some of the, um, some of the care load. He needs to be able to carry that. Um, and he, he needs to be forward thinking and moving forward with production and some of those elements as well. So that's probably your, your first guy. Um, you know, preschoolers and kids always has to come online at some point. That's pretty quickly in the process. Uh, um, you know, at, at Life Church, for example, they they do they do campus pastor, and then they do um, oh gosh, what they, they do worship, and then they do preschoolers and kids, and then they do groups and youth. I think is a kind of a combo thing, and so they kind of sp- spread the the love out with that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, that really that really is a tough that's a tough thing to do. There's no there's there's no doubt about it. Um, I know some some churches who have tried to make it easier because they do contracts with their volunteers and some of those things up front. And may, I don't know, maybe that does maybe that does make it easier because you you know you've clearly delineated it at the beginning. We've we've chosen not to do that. You know, we we certainly lay out our expectations and have trainings and and that sort of thing and. Firing a volunteer is never easy. It 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 should it should involve a whole lot of conversations on the front end before that ever happens. It should have a lot of coffee dates and a whole lot of lunches and a whole lot of love. At the end of the day, it really is though about the mission and um, and I, you you as the leader can't cannot afford to sacrifice the mission for one person. You you just you just can't for one volunteer for one staff member who's not who's not on board or pulling their weight or doing what they need to do. So I always start with, you know, those conversations, and I start with, hey, you know, what's happening in your personal life? What can we do to help? Is it too, are we asking too much? Is there unclear expectations? I found that to be the case a whole lot of times is if we think they understand what they're supposed to be doing. They really don't understand what they're supposed to be doing. Or uh, with staff particularly, we think they know what they should be doing, and they, but they, they think they should be doing that plus ten other things. And those 10 other things are keeping them away from the main thing. And so we've always had those conversations about expectation. What are you doing? Help me understand. What can we do to help? Who can we bring alongside? At the end of the day, though, if those things don't work, I, I always go back to the mission. Hey, this is what we're about. This is how we believe we're called to accomplish this. And X, Y, and Z are things that you have not been able to do to help us. So let's find another area for you to volunteer in. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, number one, it, there's a huge balance. Number one is, is, is if they've got kids, that's the easiest, the first step. If they've got kids, obviously we need to get information from them as we check in their kids. 
in every other realm of the world, that's normal. When you're checking in your kids anywhere, you're giving out information. And so we've not had any pushback from anybody giving us information when they check in their kids. The, as soon as we get their information, they go into the database. Their kids get a postcard that week, handwritten, saying, hey, thanks so much for coming. And then they get a postcard that, or a, a note handwritten that week as well because now they're in our database. And now we start the process of connecting. If they don't have kids, it's a little more difficult and um, we've just trained our, our greeters um, to look for that deer in the headlights look, which, uh, you know, if you've ever visited a church, when you drove onto this campus, I guarantee you had that look, right? Everybody was like, oh, you're new here. You've never, you've never been here, you know. It's like, oh, gosh. And so you just look for that. We try to pull them in, invite them to give us their information. A lot of times they won't. But if they do, it allows us, it allows us to, to start that process of communicating with them. We, we bribe them. We um, we, we we give them a, a a CD of our of our band. We we had a we made a CD, and and it's too, it's really because we want to give them a gift, but it's also because we want them to start to you know maybe listen to the music. So the next Sunday they're there, they can sing a song with us. So um, so there was a little bit of a dual purpose in that, um, you know. And then we've got their information, and we try to follow up. And they can opt out. They and some some do along the way. You you had a question as well. Yes. Yeah, if you if you can pick right on the on the front end, um, and, you know, it always gra- grace, you know, be gracious. You know, I mean, I, th- I think that's the that's the big deal is 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 to show a, a load of grace and give a lot of opportunities for growth and a lot of opportunities for for change. Our worship guy who started with me nine and a half years ago is still with me today, um, but uh, boy, we've had some moments in our growth where we weren't sure if we would make it and he he knew that and I knew that and there was a whole lot of growing that had to happen and uh, we're all better because we were willing we were willing to do it. I think we probably just have time for one more yes sir sure Yeah, I think that's the challenge. The question's about events and how does that fit in um, because because an event will push you over a barrier real quick, but then you've got to figure out how to maintain that. And that's, the, that's the danger with, with events, and you've got to know how to manage that well or else you're spending a lot of money and a lot of resources to get somebody in the doors um, for a big event who never who never come back. We, we've chosen really not to do many events for that purpose because the return – on investment, if you will, is not always great. They they come for the experience, but um, then there's no other experiences to draw them back. And so I would say if you're a event-heavy church, if you're relying on events to get those first-time guest numbers, to get those uh, initial contacts, and you need to make sure that you are, you're hooking them 
Because that's really what an event is designed to do. It's a, it's a hook. So you're, you're hooking them back to something else. Um, if, if not, you're just, you're just catching and releasing. And at that point, you know, it's not helping you with the growth barrier. And so you've got to hook them. If you're doing a, a family fun thing, at that family fun thing, you've got to really, really emphasize what a great program you have for kids on Sunday. And you've got to capture the information for those kids so that they're getting postcards or they're getting, you know, a little package with balloons in it for the next week or they're getting something that makes them want to come back for that following Sunday and then obviously once they're there you got to provide quality programming for them on a consistent basis so I think that's the challenge of events but I would say if you're if you're going to do events make sure you're doing the follow-up in those events because that's that's the system breakdown if it's not there it's a great question Chad how are we doing on time yeah absolutely Yes, yeah, we, yeah. Our 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 big events are, are really built around the, the two big holidays, Christmas Eve and Easter. And and this past um, this past Christmas Eve, you know, we had uh, close to eight thousand people celebrate Christmas with us on Christmas Eve. And so, what those events do for us is is they give an initial exposure um, to what we hope will be reg- regular attendance, and that that burst of 300 people that we experienced in January and February, 400 people um, came because of, of Christmas Eve. And so what we're doing on Christmas Eve is giving a, a quality program um, and trying to connect from that, from that program. So again, we're capturing information. We're asking people to you know, register their kids. Um, we're pushing hard our Sunday services. Um, we're announcing the, the new series that starts next Sunday that you absolutely don't want to miss. And we're, we're, we're hooking people and then bringing them back to us to an experience that's very similar. It's not. It's not like oh, you know, it was incredibly edgy and contemporary on Christmas Eve, and then and then the next Sunday they show up and they're like, well, you know, the organ's here, you know, and so it's it, you've got to you've got to have uh, similar experiences or else you're not going to hook and keep. There's no way. That's great. Yes, sir. Last one, Dan. Mm-hmm. And when you say venue, uh, the, uh, you, you mean a, a very different kind of experience or just a different? Yeah. Do you currently have one or two services? Oh, you currently have three services. Oh, I would add the venue. Um, if, you, if you're running multiple services already, I would add, I would add, the, I would add the venue. And, and the reason is because you can add that venue, I'm assuming, at an optimum time. Um, if you're in, if, if you're, unless, unless you're somewhere that optimal times don't matter, you know, and that is the case in some urban environments, especially. And, um, but it, it's in our, most of us Sunday, Sunday morning is still the time people want to go to church. Unchurched people go to church on Sunday morning for the most part. And, um, if that's the case in your world, you got to think that nine o'clock hour, that 11 o'clock hours when you're going to get the most bang for your buck and you want the most seats possible at those hours in your facility. And if you can get those seats by adding a venue during those times, I would do that over adding another non-optimum service time. That's a great question. That's good. Good. Hope this has been helpful, everybody.